Well, welcome, church, to our Sunday night teaching time. This is part 19 of Soul Food, the things you need to know about your Bible. We spent about four Sunday nights looking at that great parable of the seed, the sower and the seed and the soils from Matthew 13. Uh, Now we're moving to a different text, same subject, an Old Testament text. I want to talk to you about the one who trembles at God's word and a very, very uh, pungent kind of a text. So follow along Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 66, 1 to 4, the one who trembles at God's word. Let me read. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Hence the title, the one who trembles at God's word. And then these striking words, verse 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. What is that all about? He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. What's gone wrong with these people? Middle of verse 3, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So, from chapter 56 to this point, that's in 66. So, from Isaiah 56 to 66, 10 chapters, the prophet Isaiah has been, by the Spirit of God, sort of exposing and denouncing the sins of, these are God's people, these religious people. They only pay attention to the external rituals. So they keep offering sacrifices. They keep drifting in and out of the temple. But they're selective hearers. Remember the parable of the soil. Okay, These are selective hearers of God. They betray him because, verse 3, they have chosen their own ways. Not when they're in the temple, when they're out of the temple. They offer their sacrifices, they keep the routines going, but somehow they've, they've encased their duty to God in the confines of the temple. So this, they knew, this was God's turf. But in the rest of their lives, verse 4, they chose that in which I did not delight. So just, we need to, because we're religious people, we need to digest that just a little bit. God says they chose that in which... I did not delight, verse 4. How did God know these people were hypocrites? So what was was the evidence that their sacrifices in the temple, they were obedient 
enough to keep offering the sacrifices, what was the evidence that those sacrifices were just now worthless? Their hearts were prosecuted before God by the way they chose lifestyles that delighted themselves rather than those that delighted God. So the prophet's words in this magnificent text, they're designed to expose the people's sin. There's there's a very clever wording here that's designed to actually almost offend, shock a little bit. How wonderfully piercing and unpredictable God's word is. And the message is also sweetened with the word of instruction and hope. So let's work through three or four points here. Point number one. The glory of the temple was abused if it was used to limit God's ruling presence only to that physical structure. I get that in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 56, where it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? See, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. It's true, true enough, God commanded the building of the temple. The the big idea of these verses, though, is that God and the temple are not the same thing. So, So you don't necessarily do devotion to God just because you do devotion to the temple. And the important difference, the unforgettable difference, is this. You can walk away from the temple once you're done with your sacrifice. You, you can't walk away from God's presence. That's the deceiving thing, eh, about temples or churches or prayer meetings or Bible studies or youth groups. You can't limit your devotion to a particular setting and then do your own thing. So this, this is the idea lying behind God's almost sarcastic words in, in verses one and two. You, you think, you think the temple is a beautiful place and it is. I commanded it built. Let me tell you about where I live all the time. Heaven is where I li- where I live. Your temple is on earth. It's a lovely structure. I'm the one who commanded it. But let me tell you about the things on this earth. Let me tell you, in fact, about the whole earth that you can see, God says. You know what I do with that? That's where I put my feet up. The earth is my footstool, he says. Wow. So so what house were you planning on building you people with your stones, your bronze, your gold, what, what building were you planning to put up that would be big enough to hold me and contain me? Pretty good questions. The interview continues, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be. So God says, I have infinitely great creative powers. I have made everything you can see. I have made the universe and with no effort at all could have made a million universes if I had so desired. So this is God's rebuke. His mocking rebuke. 
to religious people who think they can seal up God's presence in the temple, offer their sacrifices, do their thing, their religious thing, and that'll be enough to keep God happy and they can go and live their lives the way they want. So that's the first lesson. God is bigger than any structure. His rule is everywhere, all the time, comprehensive. So my devotion to him is either seamless or non-existent. Those are the only two choices. Okay, point number two. Now you get into some really interesting points of this text. Point number two, when religious devotion is extended only to certain portions of our lives, it is more shockingly repulsive than we imagine. We don't see the wickedness of it the way we ought to see the wickedness of it. And that's the point of this third verse. Isaiah 66, 3. The prophet puts together four pairs of actions, four pairs of actions that, that don't seem appropriately joined at all. 66.3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of incense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. They have chosen their own ways. How big a problem is that? I mean, they're still going to the temple. They're still offering the commanded sacrifices, like the law of God required. Surely that must count for something. Is, is their religious devotion to God completely undone simply because in other places and at other times they act independently of him? Is that what God is trying to say? And it's at this point that Isaiah the prophet, speaking as he's inspired by the Spirit, he links together four pairs of actions. And they each take the same literary form. A positive Commanded action from God is paired up with a shockingly ugly, abusive one. And the religious devout actions and the abusive wicked ones, they're all joined together with that same little conjunction, like. So the pattern is, he who does this is like one who does that. that that's what is being set up here. Look how it all rolls off the tongue. 66.3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like, like one who blesses an idol. They've chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. So notice, these verses don't say these people have actually done these terrible things. They're not being accused of murder. They're not being accused of breaking a dog's neck. They're not being accused of offering pig's blood. And they're not being accused of kneeling down and blessing an idol. And even if they had done those things, that's not the point of the passage. The point is different, and we need to realize it. The prophet's point is that people who go and worship in the prescribed 
ways in the temple, but choose their own ways when they're on their own turf, they, they are just as morally accountable before God as people who actually do commit murder and do worship idols. So, so God sees a certain offensiveness, a vileness in people simply choosing their own ways when they're away from the temple. And that's what those pictures are meant to convey. So, so here's what, here's what God by His Spirit is doing through the prophet. This text labors to make it plain that while I might think it's a small thing to make my choices away from the church without giving preference to what pleases God, I might not think of that as a big thing. But God takes stern notice. And it's very ugly in His eyes. That's what this text says. So these verses are actually structured to help us see this. Notice the way the prophet repeats these words, um, chosen and choose. These people have chosen their own ways, 3B. I will also choose harsh treatment for them. That The point, I think, is pretty clear when we confine God just to a certain slice of the religious portion of our lives. It's easy to presume a lifestyle that chooses actions with no direct reference to God when we're away from the religious institutions. But when your God is the creator, that's what he says, I've made everything you see. When he's the creator of all that is, when he's the sovereign almighty God, you, you, can't, you can't choose your way without him. Suddenly all the chips are on the table with every lifestyle choice. Even your everyday choices, the ones that seem uh, the most to be like your own business, they all matter. Point number three. In the middle of all these denunciations, God gives, and this is what I want to talk about as we wrap up. God gives this brief description of the heart of the one on whom he will fix his favor and blessing. It's in the last part of verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, but this is the one to whom I will look. Do you want to be the kind of person? God says, I, I, I made everything. But there's a person I set my attention on, my eye is on. Do you want to be that person? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What a contrast. People who make most of their life choices steered only by their own desires, their own delights. Verse 3 says they choose their own way. Verse 4 says God hates this. And then these next words. But there is someone I'm looking for in particular. This person is getting very hard to find, God says. I'm looking for the one. There's not piles of them. I'm looking for the one who trembles at my word to be. 
People, people who hold Christian beliefs, they're a dime a dozen. They're all over the place. People who have been raised in church, they abound. They're all over the place. But here's the issue God speaks to in this text. I have made everything you can see. And the, the point of that is, there is nothing in all of my creation that compares in beauty before my eyes than a trembling heart at my word. We should pay attention to those words. God looks upon, just say, Cedarview Community Church or the church in Canada. And he doesn't regard everyone alike. That's what people would like you to think. This is, this is the one to whom I will look. It, it's an individual thing. It can't be mass produced. Yes, I love everyone. I created everyone. But, but I have, I have a special attention, a special plan for a particular kind of person. Next week, next Sunday night, we're going to look at the marks of a heart that trembles at God's word. We'll consider about half a dozen of them. But the central thing is simple. By this, I mean it's simple to define. Not necessarily easy to always do. Here is a New Testament account of the kind of heart that God looks upon with incredible favor. Here's the same idea in Paul's words, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 13. He writes to this church and says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. So, so this wasn't, they didn't have a vision of God. This wasn't Jesus standing in front of them. This was the apostles relating the gospel. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. Now it was men. They could see Paul. They could see Paul's co-workers. But they were able to, they were able to transcend that. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it not as the word of men, but, but as what it really is the word of God. There's a trembling heart because, oh, oh, this is God. I know, I know it's the kind of verse, I'm like you, we all just kind of nod our heads to. It, it, it's one of those mother and apple pie kind of texts, but, but holding on to it, especially in our selfie world. It's like trying to hold on to a soap Bible. And we just need to remember that God's word is that. It is God's word. It is his command. We're not dealing with a church. We're not dealing with traditions. We're not just handing out religious stuff. Oh, how we need to kind of stamp it on our mind all over again. God says, my throne is heaven. The earth, that's my footstool. Dawn, 
You aren't free to hear his word as another opinion. It comes to you with nothing but holiness and glory and obligation. And just like those religious people described in our text, if, if we are blind and silly enough to think, I'll just go to church, I can raise my hands and close my eyes when Tom leads the worship courses, and then leave and choose my own way, who I'm dating, who I'm living with, how I spend my money, my priorities. We have to deal with, we'll have to deal with God. He judges that. Now that's just the starting point in this text. We just kind of took the lid off it tonight. Might be a good rule of thumb. Uh, never to leave your house in the morning until you've spent enough time before God in his word that you, you feel you have his instructions for that day. That it's God's word. That's the first thing we need to come to terms with. This is the one, this is the one to whom I look. I'm looking for people that are getting hard to find who, who read this book and just go, oh, and they tremble at the word of God. The truth of it, the power of it, the fear of it, and the glory of it. Let that be Cedarview Community Church. Bless your word to our hearts. May we always be people who look beyond the obvious structures, necessary as they are, but, but see and have hearts that tremble at the authority of God in our lives. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name, and I thank you. Amen. Bless the church. Thanks for joining us on Sunday night. Join us for our prayer time.